A report from the Illinois Gaming Board shows the first month's haul for Bally's temporary Chicago casino. And City Council approves a minimum wage hike for tipped workers. I'll talk about it with Crane's reporter, Justin Lawrence. I don't know how much appetite there is at the state level to do this, but certainly if the state did this, it would alleviate some of the pressure from Chicago border wards competing with our suburban you know, neighbors because they would both be under operating on the same law. But that is the next part. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Tuesday, October 10th. You shouldn't have to explain to your bank why your business matters. Wintrust Commercial Banking doesn't rely on clients to educate them. They have dedicated teams of Chicagoland-based experts specializing in a range of industries, allowing them to offer customized solutions. Built in the area for the area, Wintrust offers the tools and support your business needs to thrive in Chicago. Be your bank's top priority at Wintrust Commercial Banking. Meet your future banker at Wintrust.com slash banker. Wintrust products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks, FDIC, EHL. The City Council approves a minimum wage hike for tipped workers. Here to talk about that, Cranes reporter Justin Lawrence. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been a minute. How are you? I know, Amy, it's been a minute, but glad to be back on. Glad to have you. All right, well, talk me through this, because this has sort of been a a whisper going on for a while, kind of a a conversation that's been happening around restaurant workers and owners and the Restaurant Association and lawmakers. Um, And tell me what's going on now. This story, I think, kicked off in 2019 when when former Mayor Lori Lightfoot increased the city's overall minimum wage to $15. Um, It's slightly lower for, for smaller businesses, but during that fight at City Hall, she came to a, a, a compromise of sorts with the Illinois Restaurant Association to, they did a one-time bump of, of tipped wages or of the minimum wage for tipped workers, um, but they left in, you know, that sub-minimum wage, that, that 60% of the city's overall minimum wage. And at the time in 2019, um, I don't think they could have done this back then, what they just did last week, but the more progressive members of the city council at the time and I actually quoted a, a union leader from SEIU in an earlier story last month. You know, they said, we're coming back for this. And now they, they have a Mayor Brandon Johnson. They have a, a more progressive city council and, and they kicked it off. Um, this has been brewing in City Hall for a few months now. And yeah, they finally approved it uh, on Friday. And so what does that bring the number up to? So over the next five years, the base pay for, for tipped workers right now is $9.48. So each of the next five years, they will receive an 8% wage increase. And by 2028, it'll, it'll match the city's overall minimum wage. I, I should say now and over the next five years, if you're a tipped employee, mostly at restaurants um, and bars, you know, it's a slow shift or a slow day or whatever. And your, your base pay of nine forty eight and the tips you receive doesn't equal the city's minimum wage, then currently the employer is on the hook for that difference. So that is already there. That will stay in place for the next five years. And then we should also say in five years when it's uh, the tipped wage is completely eliminated, you know, you can still earn tips. Um, that will just be on top of the city's minimum wage. You know, that's what we'll be exploring over the next five years is how restaurants are, are working with this and, and adapting to it. And, you know, one prediction, and, and especially for for larger restaurant groups or, or 
you know, kind of nicer places in the downtown area is the expectation that they'll be able to add a surcharge to your bill. And that's how they'll absorb their costs. Do you, do you get the sense that there's an expectation that restaurants will will move away from tipped wages into more of a, an hourly pay, or maybe we'll start seeing uh, tips more pooled among servers or something like that, or will it stay about the same? Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I, I, I do think, you know, for the immediate future, nothing much will change, right? It's an 8% increase next year, but I, I, I do think they'll have to adapt in some ways. And, you know, one thing that the industry folks were pushing back on against this wage is saying, you know, when they add that surcharge to your bill, you know, once the tip wage is eliminated, customers might might see that and conflate it with a gratuity, right? That this is a, a 20% upcharge, 15%, whatever it is. So I've already tipped, um, you know, it was included in my bill, so I don't have to add tips. Um, and that surcharge, it, it won't serve as, as a tick directly for your server, your bartender, you know, it'll be something that the restaurant's can split however they want. You know, many say they'll they'll use it to increase the pay of the back of the house or, you know, even, you know, kind of boost profits. So it, it's all very complicated and it's something, you know, because of a agreement with the Illinois Restaurant Association, they'll have five years to figure it out rather than the initial, uh, initially proposed two years, but that's where we are now. And, and talk to me about uh, opponents of the measure and how that's shaking up. When it passed on Friday, it was 36 to 10. Um, there was a, f- a few that were absent. I don't know about most. I think four or five of them of the aldermen who opposed it are, they represent border wards in the city, you know, the far reaches of the city. And they say this will really hurt them attracting restaurants to their ward, where if they just open across the street in our suburban uh, municipalities, they won't face this increased charge. I think every speech, it was it was one of those days at city council where every opponent said, you know, I really commend you for, for the ideas of this and, and for seeking to accomplish this, but I'm worried about the unintended consequences, of, you know, predicting that restaurants will shut down because of this, because they won't be able to keep up with their, their wage costs, or maybe they'll just close on Monday and Tuesdays or, or whatever their slow days are because they can't justify uh, staying open when they have to pay their workers a little more. So we will see how that goes. It, it'll, I'm sure it'll be studied and, and written about a lot over the next five years. And then what about the Illinois Restaurant Association and maybe restaurant operators that you spoke with about this issue? What, what did they have to say about this? So the Illinois Restaurant Association opposed this initially. Um, Sam Toya, the head of the association, eventually, after realizing that there, that there are other efforts at a kind of a compromise or, or separate ordinance weren't going to fly at City Hall. He negotiated to have a five-year phase out of this. So it gives restaurants a little more time to to adjust and, and increase their pay. You know, initially when it was proposed, it was going to be a two-year phase out. There were some others that really led by Gibson's group and let us entertain you. You know, in the final weeks before this was passed, they hired their own lobbyists to really oppose this and, and kind of lean on the more moderate those border ward aldermen that we just talked about to really lean on them and try to, in an effort to defeat this. Ultimately, I don't know, you know, speaking to City Hall insiders, I don't know that there's really anything they could have done differently and, and not come to this outcome. You know, that this is a promise of, of Mayor Johnson. This was a promise of a lot of city council members that just got elected and they had the votes to do it. And I think they were ultimately going to do it 
no matter the lobbying efforts. But yeah, uh, there was some tension there in, in how to oppose this. Sure. Did you speak with any servers as you're talking about restaurants, you know, hiring lobbyists, things like that? I imagine that might make a server feel some kind of way knowing, hey, my employer really opposes me making this minimum wage, you know, really opposes this measure. What did uh, what did servers have to say? Yeah, there, there was a lot of servers uh, that came down to City Hall recently, not as much as the 2019 fight. You know, the 2019 fight, actually, part of the reason that Lightfoot didn't push for this is because, you know, the Restaurant Association and other groups mobilized servers to be the voice in opposition to this because they, you know, they, they say, Hey, if you do this, then my, my employee is just going to pay me a minimum wage like everybody else. And people will tip less. They'll add the surcharge and they'll split it between the whole restaurant rather than me getting the tip. And so they really led the effort. Um, I kept expecting for that to be the same playbook this time and it never materialized in quite that way, but there was, you know, there was a lot of people at, at the recent city council meetings during public comment that, you know, we're kind of taking both sides of it. One, it'll see my overall tips go, well, this is a good job for me. Um, I really like it. It supplements my income or it is my whole income. And then there's others that um, kind of work at smaller restaurants and and say, you know, I, I'm often just making the minimum wage anyway. And I, I do think that this will help me. So it's it's certainly not something where all of the industry is, is opposed or all of the industries for it. Yeah. So five years to roll this out. What are the immediate things you'll be watching for just in the months ahead? So during um, his post city council press conference on Friday, uh, Mayor Johnson, you know, kind of promised to continue the fight. This is part of a a national um, group, One Fair Wage is the advocacy group that's kind of fighting this level or fighting this fight in different states and cities. Washington, D.C. just approved this for a second time recently. Um, but, you know, they, they kind of said that they would work with their union allies, with community groups to take this to the state. Um, I don't know how much appetite there is at the state level to do this, but certainly if the state did this, it would um, alleviate some of the pressure from Chicago border wards competing with our suburban, you know, neighbors because they would both be under operating on the same law. But that is the next part. Yeah. And you mentioned D.C. has approved this twice. Did it did it not work out the first time? Well, they, they approved it. I, I don't know the exact year that they first approved it. Um, so they approved it in a referendum, you know, D.C. voters approved it. And then their city council essentially nullified the referendum. They had a, a subsequent election to elect new city council members and a subsequent referendum and voters approved it again, I believe in even larger numbers than the first time. That was this past November and the current D.C. City Council has not taken the action to nullify it. So I think it stick, sticks in place this time. Interesting. It was certainly used during this fight as, um, you know, to say, hey, D.C. voters approve this. The people support it. And even if politicians then tried to come back and, and get rid of it, the people said, again, no, we, we like this and we support it. So that was kind of a talking point in Chicago, but we obviously did it differently by doing it through the city council rather than a referendum. Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm sure this is not the last time we will talk about this issue, but thanks so much for stopping by to break it down today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Coming up, office shedding pushes the downtown vacancy rate to another record high. We'll talk about that and more right after this.
Thanks for listening to Crane's Daily Gist. Remember, we provide a daily news brief that drops right in your inbox. It's our newsletter called The Crane's Morning 10. They're the 10 stories that will fuel a smarter workday. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com slash morning 10. This is The Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. While only open three weeks in September, Bally's temporary Chicago casino established itself as the second most popular gambling facility in Illinois. But it still has a way to go to reach the top. A report from the Illinois Gaming Board shows the casino in River North's Medina Temple brought in roughly 80,000 admissions and $6.7 million in adjusted gross receipts. Money made from gambling minus winnings paid out. The total revenue figure puts the Chicago Casino in the middle of the pack among Illinois' 14 other gambling halls, but those were in operation for all of September, whereas the Medina Temple site opened on September 9th. But even with that in mind, the gap between the Chicago site and the top-performing casino in Illinois is still pretty wide. Rivers Casino in Des Plaines brought in $41.5 million in adjusted gross receipts with about 260,000 admissions. Rivers has the edge with sheer space to bring in all that cash, however, with 78,500 square feet as compared to Bally's just under 35,000 square feet. The report from the Illinois Gaming Board also has the first tax revenue figures for the Chicago casino, about $865,000 for the state and $695,000 for the local government. Find more reporting on the topic at chicagobusiness.com. The three major U.S. airlines stopped flights with Israel after war broke out in the country over the weekend, while some Middle Eastern and European carriers continued to give passengers an exit route from the developing war. Bloomberg reported that Delta, United and American canceled services to Tel Aviv, as did European counterparts Lufthansa, Air France, KLM and budget airline Wizz Air Holdings. The Federal Aviation Administration said in a notice telling U.S. airlines to review the security situation before resuming operations, quote, operators are advised to exercise caution. Continuing, delays are expected. Operators should calculate fuel accordingly. Several Asian carriers said they would also suspend services to Israel, including Air India and Cathay Pacific. Bloomberg noted in reporting that in all, airlines suspended fewer than half of all flights to Tel Aviv as of Sunday based on data from Flight Trader 24. El Al, Israel Airlines, the nation's flag carrier, expanded its schedule over the weekend to repatriate people, according to Ynet News. Turkish Airlines and its local rival Pegasus also continued to offer flights, providing options for those seeking to leave. British Airways and Dubai's Emirates, as well as Fly Dubai, were among the airlines still flying to Tel Aviv on Monday. Bloomberg reported that British Airways introduced a flexible booking policy allowing customers to change their travel dates free of charge. American Airlines, which operates a daily service to Tel Aviv from New York's JFK airport, is reportedly doing the same over the coming days. Lufthansa on Monday suspended flights to Tel Aviv through October 14th after a security review. Ben-Gurion International Airport in Tel Aviv typically handles about 300 departures per day, according to data on Flight Radar 24. North American routes to Israel include Air Canada from Toronto and Montreal, Delta from New York, Boston and Atlanta, United from Washington, Dulles, Newark, Chicago and San Francisco, and American Airlines also from New York. The UK's Virgin Atlantic Airways canceled some services and said its flying program to Tel Aviv remains under what it described as constant review. 
Bloomberg also noted in reporting that airline shares dropped, with the Bloomberg World Airlines Index losing as much as 2.8 percent. The conflict is driving up the price of oil and therefore also aviation fuel, which is the single biggest expense for airlines. And Bloomberg also noted in reporting that avoiding Israeli airspace will add complications for airliners crossing into major hubs in the Persian Gulf and beyond. Syria to the north has remained shut to most operators for years amid the country's civil war, while Russia and Ukrainian fly zones, constituting the biggest landmass on the planet, have also been off-limits to many airlines for more than a year. The European Union Aviation Safety Agency issued a so-called conflict zone information bulletin for Israeli airspace, saying, quote, air operators are recommended to ensure that a robust risk assessment is in place together with a high level of contingency planning for their operations and to be ready for short-notice instructions from the Israeli authorities. Crane's John Aspland reported that Amgen announced in recent days it has completed its $27.8 billion acquisition of Horizon Therapeutics. The deal, which the U.S. Federal Trade Commission sued to stop before the parties reached a settlement, gives Thousand Oaks, California-based Amgen a trio of treatments for rare inflammatory diseases, Horizon's Tepeza, Cristexa, and Uplisna. In the federal statement, Amgen and Horizon agreed not to bundle Tepeza and Cristexa. Asplund noted in reporting, citing a press release issued from Amgen that as Horizon, based in Dublin, with operations out of Deerfield, adds its drugs to Amgen's inflammation portfolio, the treatments will benefit from Amgen's biologics research and development, process development, and manufacturing, as well as its presence in more than 100 countries around the world. Asplund reported that the announcement followed Thursday's approval of the deal by the High Court in Ireland. Amgen paid $116.50 per share in cash, according to the press release. Asplund also noted in reporting that details on what the acquisition will mean to Horizon's operations and workers aren't immediately clear, but the integration may move fast. Amgen said in an emailed statement that all Horizon staff will transition to Amgen on day one. The delay caused by the FTC lawsuit, however, provided an extended pre-close period. But the Amgen statement said, quote, We expect that we can integrate our companies with greater speed and clarity by moving to a single future state operating model in the coming weeks. The release continued, quote, Our intent is to build a business based on the capabilities, knowledge, and people at Horizon, meaning that we will need many talented people to continue the journey. The statement continued, quote, all sites will remain open on day one to enable business continuity. Over time, we will evaluate how these buildings and locations fit into Amgen's global footprint. The statement also said, once the process is complete, we will make decisions on whether adjustments to our local footprint are warranted. Crane's Danny Ecker reported, citing data from brokerage CBRE, that the office vacancy rate downtown during the past three months rose to an all-time high of 23.7 percent from 22.6 percent midway through the year. The share of available space is up from 21.3 percent a year ago and 13.8 percent from when the COVID-19 pandemic first began. And it's now hit a new record high for the 10th time in the past 12 quarters. 
Ecker noted in reporting that it's an unprecedented stretch for office building owners downtown where a steady stream of companies have scaled down their footprints amid the rise in normalization of remote work. While that has impacted many landlords' bottom lines since the COVID-19 pandemic began, higher interest rates over the past year have dealt a more severe blow to those with maturing debt. The combination of weak demand and reduced property values has fueled a wave of foreclosures and owners surrendering properties to their lenders rather than putting any more money into them. Ecker also reported that supply and demand fell further out of balance recently from a handful of remote work-related downsizes. Banker's Life and Casualty left behind almost 140,000 square feet at 111 East Wacker for just less than 33,000 square feet at 303 East Wacker. Yelp shuttered its 131,000-square-foot office at the Merchandise Mart when its lease expired in July. Ecker also noted that net absorption overall in the Central Business District, which measures the change in the amount of leased and occupied space compared with the prior period, fell by more than 278,000 square feet, the worst quarter of demand in two years, according to CBRE. Ecker noted more examples of the space-shedding trend that popped up over the past three months. Software company Relativity recommitted to its LaSalle Street office building but got rid of 80,000 square feet. PNC Bank is in advanced talks to leave behind 116,000 square feet in its namesake building at 1 North Franklin and move to 80,000 square feet at 155 North Wacker. And the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services said it will vacate its roughly 170,000-square-foot office at 233 North Michigan when its lease expires in November, relocating workers into available space at federally-owned buildings downtown. But Ecker also noted in reporting that the trouble remains uneven across the market, with newer and more recently updated buildings winning over companies trying to upgrade their space. Net absorption among top-tier or Class A office buildings downtown has now risen by 3.3 million square feet over eight consecutive quarters, also according to CBRE data. Class B properties, meanwhile, have seen negative net absorption in 11 of the previous 12 quarters. And so, as Ecker noted, the so-called flight to quality has pushed some developers to build even more office space downtown, even against the current backdrop. CBRE is tracking five buildings totaling nearly 1.5 million square feet of new and refurbished office space under construction currently, only 27 percent of which has been pre-leased. And that doesn't include a roughly 400,000 square foot office building at 919 West Fulton, for which developer Fulton Street recently secured a $233 million construction loan. Ecker also noted that several companies have also recently announced office expansions in recent weeks. In a cluster of moves to beef up workspace that's been unheard of since 2020, renewable energy companies Invenergy and RWE, insurance broker Lockton, and tech firm Intelliquent all signed deals for more office space. But as Ecker also noted, the third quarter also saw the first sale of a large downtown office building in more than a year. The $45 million sale of the 29-story office building at 230 West Monroe showed that buyers will emerge for downtown office properties, but at staggering discounts. Ecker noted that the sale price of the almost 624,000-square-foot building was 63% below what it traded for nine years prior. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. 
Thanks so much to today's guest, Cranes reporter Justin Lawrence. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.